I'm Brian Santo, EE Times Editor-in-Chief. You're listening to EE Times On Air. And this is your weekly briefing for the week ending October 2nd. In this episode, the trade war with China has exposed America's eroding semiconductor prowess. Congress is trying to figure out how to effectively shore up the industry. One of our guests this week is Chris Miller, an expert in international trade and relations, who argues that Congress might be headed in the wrong direction, and he suggests what the right direction might be. Also, this year's Five in Five from IBM. Every year for over a decade, IBM has identified five big societal challenges that new technology could help solve in as little as five years. We talk with IBM Research VP Jeff Wessler about using new tools such as exascale supercomputers, artificial intelligence, and quantum computers to take on various aspects of global warming, the pandemic, a grand challenge in semiconductor processing, and more. Donald Trump's trade war with China is a monkey wrench dropped into the machinery of globalization. It has disrupted international supply chains, making it far more difficult to manage both how and where everything from soybeans to semiconductors get produced. Over the years, the United States gradually lost control of entire segments of the semiconductor supply chain. You can argue how much of an effect that's had on the diminishing competitiveness of U.S. chip companies, but the fact is that the competitiveness of U.S. chip companies is diminishing. The trade war both exacerbates and emphasizes that problem. One of the concerns is that the U.S. has limited capacity to manufacture the most advanced chips domestically. Intel is the last of the leading-edge manufacturers in the U.S., but it stumbled recently. The U.S. semiconductor industry has persuaded Congress to help. Several proposals for legislation have been bundled into a bill being worked on now called the Chips for America Act. That's a tortured acronym, by the way. It stands for Creating Helpful Incentives to Produce Semiconductors for America Act. The CHIPS Act is focused largely on manufacturing, but it is also considering support for other aspects of semiconductor manufacturing, including packaging, which is becoming very, very important. Intel, which has been carrying the burden of maintaining world-class production capabilities in the U.S. pretty much alone now, is lobbying for congressional support under the CHIPS Act. Last May, the administration induced TSMC, the world's largest IC foundry, to say it would consider setting up a fab in the United States. TSMC is looking for some federal support too, however, before it makes its final decision. And if Congress is going to spend money to support domestic manufacturing, the last large foundry based in the U.S., Global Foundries, believes it deserves a slice of the pie too. As do other foundries, private manufacturers from the very large, such as Micron Technologies, to the very small, such as startup spin memory. But at least one influential scholar is asking, is manufacturing the best place for the country to spend its limited budget? Chris Miller is a professor at Tufts University and an economic historian who is rapidly gaining an international reputation for his expertise in international trade and relations. He published his first book in 2016, The Struggle to Save the Soviet Economy, is about Russia after the collapse of the Soviet Union. 
He followed that up two years later with Putinomics, Power and Money in Resurgent Russia. He's currently working on a history of the semiconductor industry. Our EE Times colleague, George Leopold, recently quoted Chris Miller in an article about the CHIPS Act. George invited him onto this podcast to have a longer conversation about the trade friction between the U.S. and China and how the U.S. should support the semiconductor industry. Here's George. Semiconductors have emerged, to use the military term as a choke point, sort of pitting U.S. technological superiority against China's determination and deep pockets to uh, to build an indigenous system. You've, you've argued that in trying to decapitate U.S. efforts to decapitate Huawei, that's sort of a signal of a decline in American technical prowess. And in your view, what's the best way to meet the tech challenge from China? Well, I think you can understand what the administration is trying to do vis-a-vis China. It's worried that China is catching up in a number of key technologies, semiconductors being one of them, and it wants to keep the gap between the U.S. and China as large as possible. And one way to do that is to reduce China's ability to make progress. And in many ways, there's nothing new about that strategy. There's long been export controls on certain uh, types of technology that are uh, needed to manufacture semiconductors, though the enforcement, I think, has been much less intense in recent years compared to earlier decades. But In addition to the strategy of trying to hold China back, there's also a strategy of trying to push U.S. innovation forward. Uh, And I I think an optimal strategy includes a bit of both. But I think right now it's fair to say that government is focused a lot on holding China back and not nearly as much as it ought to be on on pushing the U.S. forward. And so that, um, that raises the question, well, what can we do better to foster a climate where you get more innovation and more investment in this type of technology in the United States? Right. So it seems that there's sort of a bipartisan consensus now that we need what Jim Lewis calls a next generation industrial policy. And the the expression of that is, of course, the, the CHIPS Act, which has been folded into the National Defense Authorization Act. Chris, what are you hearing in terms of where that stands? Is the, is the conference meeting and, and what issues are the House and the Senate conferees uh, grappling with? Well, there's there's been a number of twists and turns in the debate so far regarding what actually makes it into the final bill. And, you know, I I don't know that I've got the crystal ball to say what's going to come out of of that process. Obviously, the NDAA is always uh, one of the more uh, contentious pieces of legislation that that eventually gets passed, even though it always eventually does get passed. But I think there's a number of different schools of thought as to what's most important. I think one school of thought is to say we've got to find a way to uh, increase fabrication of semiconductors in the U.S., uh, which uh, some people think requires putting more government money behind um, behind firms that are willing to build or further invest in existing fabs in the U.S. Um, and I, I see the logic behind that. There's no doubt that there are spillover effects from uh, having some fabs into other parts of the, the semiconductor supply chain. Um, but it also seems to me that if you look historically, uh, the, the U.S. government has been relatively good at uh, funding an ecosystem when it wants to fund an ecosystem and less good at targeting specific parts of the supply chain or specific types of technology, specific industries. And so when I look back at the the past half century of government support for um, for semiconductor technology, it, it seems to me that the, the ones that have been most successful at finding commercially relevant products are, are not those policies that have picked out a specific um, type of activity and said, let's fund that, but rather 
those mm-hmm. those strategies and said, let's find a, a way that supports the broader ecosystem. Right. Yeah. Now you've yeah you've questioned uh, parts of the Chip Act, especially those emphasizing reviving domestic U.S. manufacturing and and I if I read it correctly, you're you're talking about let's let's put our basic research money into next generation technologies. One of the examples uh, that we've reported on, you're aware of, I'm sure, is DARPA's Electronic Resurgence uh, Initiative. Is, is that one example of a way forward, a, a good investment by the U.S. government? I, th- I think that's right. And there's no doubt that uh, an increase in domestic manufacturing would be a good thing. I think the question is, you know, sh- should that be where our marginal dollar goes, especially at a time when we're likely to see uh, fewer dollars uh, left around to spend on different industrial priorities? And so given that, I- I'd rather see money put at the-, the leading edge rather than put into potentially mature technologies that uh, that probably will be important in the future, but probably not at the cutting edge and probably also not where most of the dollars are made. I think one interesting thing to look at is where are there going to be um, extraordinary profits made 10 years down the road? And it's probably not going to be in doing things that are easy to do today or even doing things that are hard to do today um, will in a decade's time be relatively straightforward. And so what I'd rather see is uh, people looking and saying, how can we invest in what's going to matter most in, in a decade or two decades? Uh, that's where you can help build firms that are going to have a competitive advantage vis-a-vis their competitors, uh, and also how you can support the industry as a whole, because you ultimately need um, not just firms that are are at the world standard and can compete with Taiwan and China and South Korea, but firms that are, are driving ahead of the world standard to really attract resources and really attract talented people uh, into the industry. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I noted yesterday, uh, Global Foundries uh, had a, a media briefing, and uh, the subject of the Chips Act came up, and the word "subsidy" was used. And Tom Caulfield, the CEO, bristled at the expression, and said, "We per- prefer to uh, uh, call this co-investment." And I guess they could make that argument since they always point out that they've. They've invested $15 billion in fab capacity in the U.S., and obviously they're a trusted uh, supplier to DOD and so forth. But, uh, you know, as we've reported, there's been a, the industry's waging a pretty heavy lobbying campaign right now to, to shape uh, the outcome of the CHIPS Act. How do you see it? Well, yeah, you can you can debate over what the right language is, subsidy or co-investment, but it's clear that not everyone can get a co-investment, and so uh, you know it's it's not a surprise to see the firms lobbying the the hardest to find more co-investment dollars than their peers. Um, but I, th- I think when you when you look historically at the semiconductor industry, what you find is that the places where the most lobbying dollars were being spent were places where you often got a lot of legislative activity. That's not a surprise. But they were often mm-hmm. also places where you didn't have the type of innovation that was making a difference uh, a decade later. I look back to the debate over Japan's uh, semiconductor industry in the 1980s, which uh, if you looked at volume and if you looked at sales dollars in the late 80s was overtaking the U.S. by some metrics. And there was a big effort by the industry then to both pressure the Japanese to open their markets and uh, and to even have um, agreed upon sales uh, targets that they would hit from U.S. firms, um, but also to threaten tariffs and, and to have a variety of subsidy programs uh, for the U.S. industry. And I think what's really striking about 
that period is that there was a huge focus on memory chips at the time, which were the bulk of the market. Uh, and if you fast forward 10 years after that, memory chips were an important part of the market, but not where most of the money was being made. And so and there's an argument that actually a lot of the legislative activity that occurred as a result of this lobbying in the 1980s really was kind of missing some of the key points, which is that there was a whole new set of technology that didn't have all the lobbying dollars behind it, but was actually more important for the health of the industry in the long run. Uh, Chris, you're writing a book on the history of, of I guess, the computer chip, the, the semiconductor. Are you? Can you tell us a little bit about uh, where that's at and, and when the book might come out? Yeah, the book's about two years away from uh, publication. My my uh, goal is to put the computer chip at the center of both the global economy over the past um, half century or so, and also the, the center of international politics. Um, because it seems to me that if you want to understand uh, what has undergirded American power over the past half century, it's it's America's dominance of computing power, uh, which, which obviously relies on uh, America's central role in, in designing and producing and uh, selling chips. Um, and you, what you see with Huawei right now is actually uh, nothing new in a sense. The U.S. has long tried to use access uh, to computer chip technology, which the U.S. has historically dominated as a tool with which to punish its rivals. We saw this with the Soviet Union, for example, in the Cold War uh, in a very significant way, more significant even than we see with China right now. And we also see uh, chip technology and uh, semiconductor supply chains as being ways the U.S. binds allies more closely towards it. So you look at South Korea, Taiwan, or Japan, most interestingly, and uh, on the one hand, they've done exceptionally well over the past couple of decades. On the other hand, they're extraordinarily reliant on uh, both U.S. technology and U.S. markets. So it's they've been sort of bound into the U.S. system as a result of these supply chains. And, and my argument is that you can't understand how either of these processes work, the U.S. Uh, competitive strategies versus its rivals or its strategies to bind together its, its allies without looking at the chip, uh, both as a piece of technology, but also as as a, as a set of, of networks that, uh, that cross borders, as a set of trade linkages, uh, as a set of intellectual property linkages, um, all of which have enhanced American power really substantially. And the, the key question, of course, that this raises going forward is, will this last? Will the U.S. remain at the center of this global network uh, in the next couple of decades, or is it eroding? And I think there's reasons to think that it's eroding to a certain extent as, as China invests a lot more in particular. Um, but also there's a whole lot of path dependencies that uh, keep the U.S. in a central position. And so it's not going to disappear overnight, even if the trend lines don't look that positive today. Yeah. And you've made the argument that if if we do go after uh, Huawei and Tencent and these companies, it's going to force some of these companies relying on U.S. technology to to diversify and create their own indigenous capabilities, right? Well, they're going to try. The, the challenge that companies like Huawei face is that uh, it's an extraordinarily difficult struggle um, if you're going to try to create your own, not only semiconductor design, but also manufacturing and manufacturing equipment firms, um, because right now Huawei's cut off from almost all of it. Uh, and that's something you can't create overnight. Huawei's done actually, I think, a pretty impressive job on, on the design front with high silicon, but that faces real severe challenges right now, given the new uh, U.S. regulations that that severely restrict uh, sales to it, and so I think 
no matter how many billions China pours into the industry, it's it's not something that that they're going to uh, have have developed independently within five years or even within ten years. I mean, it's worth noting that the Chinese have poured billions of dollars into their semiconductor industry for now several decades, and and there's been just as many failures as there have been successes, perhaps even more. Um, so I think the Chinese still remain pretty far behind, even though they've obviously narrowed the gap from uh, where they've been in the past couple of decades. Yeah, at least I think probably about two generations of process technology. Yeah, right. So if if, if you were uh, able to craft the perfect legislation, I mean, obviously you think that uh, uh, more money f- investment in, in manufacturing is generally a good thing. What else would you like to see in in the, the spending legislation to advance our technological capabilities over the next couple of decades? Yeah, I think there are a couple of actually different questions at, at play here. One is specific to the defense sector and to defense supply chains. And, and that might be a case where there's a really strong argument to have manufacturing onshore. Now, the amount of manufacturing you need onshore to meet uh, defense needs is actually pretty small. The uh, mm-hmm. defense sector makes up a couple percentage points of, of overall uh, consumption of, of chips in, in the U.S. So that's not a, a huge market, but, but that, that's kind of a separate question than do we need to manufacture every iPhone chip onshore, I think. Um, yeah. But I think you need to look at the entire, not only the entire supply chain, but the, the entire ecosystem. So start with Education. Are we producing enough of the engineers we need to um, provide the, the the types of talent to chip design firms, to uh, companies that are, are fabricating chips, etc.? Um, are do we have the right set of tax incentives and environmental policies to make it possible to build a uh, a fab at a competitive price? It seems like the answer right now, in in many cases, is is no. Uh, and so we need to look at. What the right way to deal with that is. It might be the case that uh, the only way you can make uh, manufacturing in the U.S. competitive is by handing out money, but it, it's probably not. Uh, and it seems to me that there's probably regulatory questions that can be looked at um, next to next to the subsidy questions or the co-investment, if you will, um, to, mm-hmm. to to make fabrication more more cost competitive. But I, I think the key point is that it's not obvious that we need to focus on fabrication. It'd be great to have more onshore, but there's a lot of other important parts of the supply chain and a lot that are more valuable than fabrication too. Right, right. One last question for you, Chris. What, what do you think the likelihood is that TSMC is gonna build that fab in Arizona? <laughs> and, would it, and, would it, and would it matter? Would it matter? You know, I think obviously it's not going to be the centerpiece of TSMC's global production. Obviously, it's going to be not leading edge by the time it's built. It's going to be relatively small as a share of TSMC's overall production. We know all that. Um, that said, uh, there there is a benefit to having more manufacturing. You just have a larger ecosystem, more people working in the field. That's a good thing. Uh, is it transformative? Probably not. But is it uh, positive on the margin? I'd say yes. Will it be built? I mean, I don't think I've talked to anyone who thinks it's a coincidence that TSMC uh, offered to build a fab in a swing state in an election year. Uh, and so I think we'll have to reconvene after November 3rd to see who's in the White House and then assess again whether they're going to go through with that investment. I, I've been struck by uh, talking to people in Washington how few people think uh, that's a, a done deal. Even people who I would think would be obligated based on their 
their job in government to say that it's a done deal have, have prevaricated on whether it's actually going to happen. So it seems like there's a, a, a lot of big open questions around it. And, and to me, I think that just speaks to the, the broader challenge. We shouldn't be focusing on a specific project. We should be focusing on what's the broader system look like, what's the broader ecosystem look like, because that's where we can actually uh, count on government to make intelligent bets over the long term. Is the government going to make the right bet in terms of where TSMC should build its next fab or, or or what that fab should be focused on. I doubt it. I don't think that's what Congress is good at. Their track record is, I think, actually opposite quite poor on that front. But uh, if you look at DARPA investing in advanced technologies, there's something where actually they've got a great track record. Uh, and I'd rather have my marginal dollars go in that direction than go towards uh, subsidies or, or co-investment, whatever phrase you'd like to use. Right, right. Lots of moving parts. So uh, we'll, we'll continue tracking this. Uh, Chris Miller from Tufts University, thanks for being with us. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. George Leopold has been following the progress of the CHIPS Act in the pages of EE Times. We've got links to his coverage on the webpage dedicated to this podcast episode, which, if you're not already here, can be found at www.eetimes.com slash podcasts. By the way, since George is one of our favorite people and a fine reporter to boot, I am delighted to take this opportunity to flag a biography he wrote called Calculated Risk, The Supersonic Life and Times of Gus Grissom. It's a fine read. I think you'll like it. There's a link to that on the podcast page too. EE Times covers the business of technology. Any given story might be a little more technology than business or vice versa, but yeah. Business is about the prospects for buying or selling. When it comes to semiconductors and other advanced electronics technologies, that usually means looking ahead to whatever products are being prepared for the next holiday gift-giving season or the next upgrade or replacement of something that's already out there. What I'm getting at here is that typically the timescale that most businesses look ahead is months. Sure, there are exceptions, automotive electronics, for example, but even in automotive, some OEMs want to eventually get down to months. Anyway, the thing is, there are some technological challenges that take years to tackle and can't be tackled by any single organization alone. And there aren't too many companies that can take the time to examine those kinds of challenges. IBM is one of them. The company's IBM research operation is renowned for being one of the few organizations on the planet with the wherewithal to think about technological roadmaps that sometimes look as far as 50 years ahead. Every year for the last 14 years, IBM Research has designated five grand challenges that it believes technologists using the most advanced tools might be able to solve in as little as five years. IBM calls it five and five. Jeff Welser is the vice president of IBM Research, Exploratory Science and University Partnerships. We gave him a ring to learn about this year's five and five. Our whole theme this year uh, for the five and five is about how we can supercharge the discovery of materials, new materials with new functionality to enable a more sustainable future. So, so that was a theme we, were, we, we realized was particularly important given some of the challenges we're seeing uh, around climate change, COVID-19 pandemics, a lot of the, the, the sustainability issues we see in the world today. So the five we focused in on was uh, finding materials to help us capture and transform CO2 harmful emissions to mitigate climate change, for example, 
or modeling the way uh, nature actually produces fertilizers and nitrates so we could actually do it in a way to grow food more sustainably while reducing carbon emissions and energy consumption. Number three was, can we rethink batteries themselves, which are playing an increasing role in our renewable energy infrastructure and also in electric cars? Uh, rethink them not just for getting better performance and power, which we always do, but to make them more sustainable and less impactful on the environment. Um, the number four is really more generally for manufacturing of a lot of our high-tech products, particularly chip infrastructure. Can we find ways to make those materials more sustainable? Uh, and lastly, uh, as we think about actually attacking the COVID-19 um, uh, uh, pandemic, we need to find new medications, whether it's vaccines or therapeutics and other medicines. Um, obviously, that's a very long process, 10 years, billions of dollars usually. Could we find ways uh, to actually combine AI and, and, and other technologies to look at reusing existing medications that maybe are already proven safe that could actually have an impact on, on COVID-19 as well? So I noticed that uh, uh, almost everything on the list did involve material science, often just basically dealing with uh, elements um, and uh, it's chemistry, uh, physics, uh, not necessarily technology per se. So I'm wondering um, where does the technology come in? And I'm assuming the answer might be with creating the solutions for the problems. That's exactly right. So if you think about the way uh, we as, a, as in the world do materials discovery today, it still is very similar to Thomas Edison's process, right? Where you, you mix up a material and you try it and you mix a material and you try it and you keep doing that, you know, obviously using the scientists expertise to figure out the best combinations to get the properties they're looking for. Um, over time, of course, we've used uh, high-performance computers and simulation to help that process, to be able to simulate materials ahead of time. Uh, but it's always been a challenge because in order to simulate materials at a scale, you know, large enough molecules to really be something of interest requires a huge amount of computational power so that even the largest supercomputers can really only simulate fairly small uh, molecules or reactions if you want to do an sort of exact simulation. Um, we believe, though, with the advent of AI, uh, artificial intelligence systems, as well as uh, eventually quantum computing, combining that with HPC uh, capability really does offer then an option for truly accelerating the discovery of materials. Um, and I, to lay that out, if you think about um, what a material scientist does today to go after new material, they, they know all the materials they've worked with in the past in that area, and they, they read papers, of course, about other people's results, and they then try to come up with some new idea about what they might try next. If an AI system could actually read through much larger corpuses of papers and patents and experimental results, it could hopefully, and could understand what it was reading in terms of what the features are you're looking for, it could then surface ideas and combinations that maybe the individual scientists wouldn't be able to understand on their own or find on their own just because they can't read that many papers. Um, you know, it still requires the scientists to come in and then decide which of these things make a difference, but that can make a huge uh, uh, speed up in terms of how quickly they can find new materials to try. Um, and then in addition, if you think about trying to actually do the experiments and you see the results coming out, um, obviously we can try and model uh, what those results mean to try and think about what the next experiment should be. 
But again, AI systems are showing promise for being able to look at a series of experiments and results and, and hypothesize different experiments you might want to try or different combinations uh, to go after based on the patterns they're seeing from, again, a larger corpus of data than what an individual scientist could look at. And even uh, we even had some uh, uh, experiments going on where we have we call our Robo RXN system, where the machine itself can be run, the robotic machine itself can be run to to mix the chemicals up under the direction of uh, both the scientists as well as you know the AI uh, recipes that come up that the AI system can produce on on what combinations might be the right steps to actually produce a specific molecule, and actually then run you know hundreds or thousands of experiments uh, even remotely. So we think there's a lot of opportunity by combining these technologies then to actually accelerate material searching. The ones we've chosen to highlight in five and five were ones not only that we think are important from a um, societal point of view, but ones where we actually are doing some experiments ourselves as well internally or, or with some of our partners. So it's a lot. Of, it sounds like the the one of the themes behind a lot of the 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 problems, the challenges that uh, IBM has selected to try to address. Uh, with this year's five, um, seems to be with discovery. Um, and, and I get how that works with uh, trying to find a compound that uh, that uh, binds CO2 better. Um, I get how that might work with um, trying to find uh, new chemicals uh, for creating batteries that might be more efficient. Um, same thing with photoresists. Again, trying to find uh, um, a combination of chemicals that uh, that do what you want them to do. Even with the antivirals, the one that that I'm not quite figuring out is the nitrogen fixing. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought that was really fascinating. Um, I was reading the background materials. Uh, you the the way the uh, the challenge was laid out was that ordinarily. Uh, plants need nitrogen and the way they normally get it is from nitrogen fixing bacteria in the ground. And when we make uh, artificial uh, fertilizers, uh, it's a big um, uh, energy intensive process uh, to, to create an energy fixing compound. This is something where you're, it seems like you're trying to replicate a bacterial action, which maybe might be less of a a discovery than than some than than some of the others on the list. Uh, am I thinking of this correctly, or or could I get you to maybe talk a little bit more about that process? Yeah, I think you are thinking about it correctly, and that it is it is a, of a different flavor in this case because we actually are trying to uh, in the first step really understand how the bacteria even do it. Right, so there there are these subset of plants that can actually you know very efficiently take advantage of making their own fertilizer in a sense from from the the bacteria and the outputs that come in the ground. Whereas we the process we use to make fertilizer is incredibly energy intensive and, and emits a lot of carbon. Uh, so can we understand first of all how they're doing that? And that's of course a lot of continued just scientific um, analysis of it. Um, and even the chemical, even as we understand the chemical pathways, understanding in detail how that chemical pathway works. To do that kind of work does require, you know, potentially HPC kind of simulations. But again, they aren't really good enough at the scale we need. That's one where when we get to having large enough quantum computers, 
that's where we really think that kind of technology can shine to actually do really complex uh, chemical equations, which are in a sense a giant quantum mechanical problem. I mean, that's what the, the molecules are doing there in the end is mixing their electrons back and forth uh, in different quantum mechanical states. So that's that's the sort of longer term approach we're taking. But in the, in the shorter term, back to something a little bit more discovery-like, we can look at existing catalysts that we have today. Um, and look, again, looking through large numbers of them to understand would any of these show the catalytic effects they show in, in the um, uh, functions we use them for today? Would that be applicable to actually helping us fix nitrogen at lower energies? Because catalysts in general tend to be you know, good at making a, a particular um, a chemical reaction happen uh, more quickly or with less energy input. So looking through again how we use catalysts in a, a wide variety of areas today that touch on similar molecules or elements to the nitrogen fixing process and then combining that with our uh, hopefully increased knowledge of how bacteria themselves are doing it, could we then find um, a catalyst that might actually enable us to do this at much lower energy? So we've talked about uh, AI, we've referred to high performance computing, uh, we're about to enter the exascale mm-hmm. era. Um, we've talked about quantum computing, and we know IBM has done some amazing things there. Are there other technologies that are becoming uh, other technologies that are becoming sophisticated enough uh, that uh, could help with some of these? And for example, I'm thinking uh, I've read about uh, using. Uh, semiconductors as a substrate for, uh, you know, doing uh, a, a lot of chemical, uh, a lot of chem- you know, chemical reactions in parallel on one substrate, for example. Um, any other technologies that uh, that are coming into play here that you think are going to develop in the next five years and help with some of these grand challenges? Well, certainly the one you just brought up there on, on using semiconductors for microfluidics or even nanofluidics. Uh, so now enabling us to be able to do very precise uh, um, uh, chemical reactions on a chip. And as you said, maybe many, many reactions in parallel even. And the thing that's also nice about it is not only the ability to do it from, um, you know, the standpoint of doing many at a time or all on uh, on a smaller uh, substrate there, but also um, the, the fact that you could have a system then be automated, right? So you could have a system where uh, the uh, AI, or not even say AI, but even a normal computer is controlling the reactions you're putting in, controlling when you release different chemicals. And this then allows a level of parallelization uh, and throughput that you, you can't get just with lots and lots of grad students in a laboratory. Although grad students do very good work, they, they are getting limited by how much a, a human can actually do. Um, the Robo RXN that I referred to is sort of a macro scale version of that. It's not on a semiconductor substrate, but it is a um, uh, basically a robotic chemical uh, lab that we built in our Zurich um, facility um, that allows you to um, run a set of automated experiments, you know, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, uh, in lots of them in parallel, um, where you can then feed in, you know, if you get a whole bunch of different um, potential uh, um, reactions you should be doing, different combinations you should be doing, uh, being able to do those all very quickly be, be also limits your throughput. So could you have a system where you could actually let that go uh, on its own actually can make a big difference in how fast then you can get that work done. Um, so the other advantage of it is, you know, we did some experiments with it already around some of the CO2 material, CO2 capture materials. Um, and we were able to do it, you know, with our Yorktown lab coming up with some of the ideas, actually running it in Zurich and then the Zurich lab getting some of the results and the ones that look most promising, shipping those 
to our Almond and Lab in San Jose to actually do some more advanced uh, characterization of the results that came out. So it really allows a level of collaboration then, which also can help accelerate uh, the whole process. All right. My next question was going to be about um, uh, collaboration with uh, IBM in the past has been uh, pretty generous sharing the results of some of its research with uh, with other organizations um, to help solve these, you know, the grand challenges. Uh, I'm wondering if I can get you to just talk about some of the uh, the group efforts or the other organizations that IBM is working with uh, in some of the, in addressing some of the, this year's five challenges. Right. So I guess I'd highlight two, you know, one is on the, obviously on the vaccine front, you know, the idea of how we can actually help with the COVID-19 pandemic, you know, so we, a lot of the stuff that we've been surfacing because, you know, we aren't ourselves are not going to go and and, and make the pharmaceutical drugs. Um, We have been putting out into um, uh, out just out on the web. We had a website for for starting with COVID-19 in the summertime, we put out various tools people could use. You know, one was you know the ability to to find potential therapeutics that could be reused uh, for for um, for treating COVID nineteen. There's been a couple of papers just published in the last couple of months um, from groups that have actually identified a couple of um, of potential candidates where they they see some. Uh, uh, potential use for uh, an existing drug to help with COVID-19. And a lot of that work comes from the ability for AI to read through large numbers of studies and find places where a doctor perhaps has given a medicine to a patient that has that has more than one illness. So he's giving it to him for a specific illness, but happens to notice that it's actually helping with the other illness. And it's a good way of starting to say, hey, there's something here that's, that's worth, worth looking at. Um, in addition to that, we actually put out some tools as well for um, helping uh, people to sift through the genomes of, of bacteria and viruses to help understand more how that might uh, be find targets for treating uh, either as a vaccine or else treating for therapeutics, uh, COVID, or also helping to understand how maybe a person's own microbiome might be affecting how sick they get or how well they are able to fight off the virus. There's a lot of study right now on this whole question of how our microbiome uh, is linked into our health. So these are examples of tools we actually put out for really the community at large of researchers to use. Um, lastly, along those lines, we also had started this HPC consortium. Uh, you know, we started originally uh, talking to the, the national labs and um, OSTP uh, in, in DC, but then rapidly, you know, pulled on in Amazon and Microsoft and a lot of other folks came together. So we offered up over 400 petaflops of, of basically free computing power on HPC systems around the world to people who submitted um, you know, research projects to do with COVID. Um, obviously, this is all about then accelerating that, that search. Um, and the other one I'd highlight then is on the batteries. Uh, we've had a lot of work over the years uh, with various um, consortium, including universities and national labs around just trying to find batteries that have greater and greater performance. Um, the more recent stuff that we just did, where we tried to think about the sustainability, uh, we did with some partners, uh, Daimler, uh, as well as um, Central Glass, who does electrolytes, and Citus, which is a, a battery manufacturing company, you know, to show that we could build a battery that had, at least I should say a prototype of a battery that had no cobalt or nickel in it, which are both heavy metals of, of concern. Um, and in fact, could become could be utilizing iodine-based uh, um, uh, electrodes instead, which is a much cheaper uh, material to get and something in fact you can get from seawater sea and you don't necessarily even have to mine it um, and, and show it still have very good performance. 
So now we're going to continue to work with those partners uh, to see, well, how could we actually scale this up to be a scale that not just a laboratory uh, bench experiment, but going going beyond it. In that case, obviously, what we're looking for is you know, IBM's never going to go make batteries. Is there another path where someone else could go take this technology and go and go make a battery that, that could actually have impact somewhere? Anything that I haven't asked you about um, with uh, evolving the five for five um, that you surprised you that you found interesting or or intriguing or, or just plain groovy? <laughs> uh, I would say I, I, nothing stands out particularly other than just the complete flexibility of these systems once you start to build them and think about them on how you can apply them in so many different areas. Obviously, we chose to highlight five here, but really we see this as part of what we call our sort of future of computing work in general, where we really think the ability of computers to advance uh, and accelerate our ability to do science and scientific discovery broadly. We're just really reaching a turning point. And it, it really does come from the fact that we have um, you know, the addition of AI and eventually quantum to our HPC systems, which we already uh, use effectively uh, today. Um, and that, that really ties into something else that we've been uh, pushing at the same time as the five and five. And that, that is this whole um, notion of the urgency of science. Um, and and it's, a, it's an effort we're hoping to get you know, more companies and organizations thinking about. And it really just reflects the fact that it, as we look at the world's problems, you know, we don't have answers for all of them, but almost all of them can be helped if we really advance the science itself. And that, that's not just advancing science technologies, but the way we do scientific thinking and applying that, whether it's making policy decisions or decisions about um, you know, how we should uh, attack a problem. Uh, so in our everyday lives, as well as you know, on the sort of grand scale of discovering a new material. So I think this urgency of science is something that I hope um, you know, transcends just the five and five we're talking about now, or even the computing work we're talking about, and really is something people should take to heart as they think about how we go after solving a lot of the problems in the world today. Jeff, thank you so much for your time today. We appreciate it. Thank you. I very much enjoyed it. That was IBM Research Vice President Jeff Welser. To learn more about IBM's most recent 5 and 5, we've got a link to the company's webpage that talks about the program. That's on our own podcast webpage. Just about every week, we like to celebrate the anniversaries of watershed events in technology history, along with as many digressions as I can find. Today, we're going to set our Wayback Machine to September 26th, 1983, the day the world almost ended in a nuclear war. Don't remember that? That's because nobody told you about it until years later. September 26th, 1983 was just another Friday most of us were slogging through on our way to Friday night. The only people who might remember that day might be rabid baseball fans. That was the day Phillies Hall of Fame pitcher Steve Carlton notched his 300th win, beating the cards. The Cold War was still on, and one of the staunchest Cold Warriors, Ronald Reagan, was in the White House. On March 8, 1983, Reagan made the Cold War even more tense by calling the Soviet Union the Empire of Evil. The evil empire stuff was playing well with Reagan's base, but it wasn't particularly reassuring to Americans worried about being obliterated because of his recklessness. Remember, this is the guy who a year later would be caught on tape saying this. My fellow Americans, I'm pleased to tell you today that I've signed legislation that will outlaw Russia forever. We begin bombing in five minutes. 
Yeah, that was nominally a joke, but if Reagan only knew how very not funny that was. The Cold War was already intense, and it just got worse in September of 1983. On September 1st that day, the Soviets shot down a Korean passenger jet that had strayed over Soviet airspace. 269 people died. Now, it's not as if, after that, most people were walking around actively fretting about a potential nuclear strike. But even though most people weren't actively fretting about a potential nuclear strike, some people were. And most of those people were serving in the military of the evil empire. So on September 26th, 1983, when the Soviet Union's brand new space-based nuclear early warning system reported the launch of a Minuteman intercontinental ballistic missile from a base in the U.S., the Soviets had every reason to believe that they might be under attack. The only reason you're listening to this right now is a guy named... Stanislav Yevgrafovich Petrov. Petrov was the officer of the Soviet Air Defense Forces that day who was responsible for retaliating in case there was an attack, and he just didn't believe it. If the Americans were going to strike first, why send only one missile? And then the Soviet nuclear warning system reported four more missiles had been launched. But Petrov remained skeptical. Five was still a small number of missiles to start a war with. Plus, there was nothing on radar, and, you know, the nuclear warning system was brand new. Those alerts were, in fact, false alarms. The explanation we have today is that they'd been triggered because of some weird alignment of the satellite orbits and sun bouncing off of high-altitude clouds. Anyway... Carlton got his 300th win that night, and nobody outside of Russia heard anything about everybody almost dying until the 1990s. Petrov was subsequently the subject of a documentary, The Man Who Saved the World. And the moral of the story is, geez, technology, right? A lot of the information for this Wayback Machine segment is from an article from our sister publication, EDN. We've got a link on the webpage to the story titled, Satellite error nearly causes nuclear war. And that's a wrap for the weekly briefing for the week ending October 2nd. Thank you for listening. The weekly briefing is available on iTunes, Android, Stitcher, and Spotify. But if you get to us via our website at www.eetimes.com slash podcasts, you'll find a transcript along with links to the stories we mentioned, along with other multimedia. This podcast is produced by Aspen Core Studio. It was engineered by Taylor Marvin and Greg McRae at Coop Studios. The segment producer was Katie Huss. I'm Brian Santo. See you next week. I have one last question for you. Uh, do you really understand quantum computing? <laughs> I think anyone who says they understand quantum computing has never actually learned anything about quantum computing. <laughs> uh, actually, it's, I say that tongue in cheek, but I do think that you know one of the one of the jokes that we have around the lab. In fact, actually, um, our quantum computing team made up some stickers uh, to put our laptops. Is you're thinking too classically. 
because really, I think that is the biggest struggle for those of us as we, we work in the quantum computing world. It really is a different way of doing computation. It's completely different than the way we do. Uh, we think about computation today in terms of writing programs and things. Um, for electrical engineers, you know, I, I, I reckon it, it's, it's more similar to when you hook up logic gates, ANDs and, and ANDs and NOR gates or something to actually create a circuit that then would do a computation. You know, that's sort of where we are with quantum. And unfortunately, in this case, though, the gates are all quantum gates, so the, their effects are all probabilistic. Uh, and you have to really understand then how that's going to combine. <laughs> 